What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Clips Combo Show. I'm your host, Joey Lynn, and today we are asking the question, are the Clippers in trouble? Now, that's the title of today's episode, and I think it is a fair question to ask because the Clippers have dropped their last two games, their first two games post-All-Star break, and there have been some very concerning Trends. Now, I know you might be asking me, Joey, it's just a two-game sample size. How can you be all that concerned about two games? Now, I understand where you're coming from, but a lot of these trends have been developing throughout the course of the season. And quite frankly, a lot of them have been existent since the beginning of the season. And to start, it's their win profile that really concerns me. Obviously, their last two games have come against teams that uh, are supposed to be uh, some of the better teams in the Western Conference, starting with the Denver Nuggets last night, and then, of course, the Sacramento Kings a couple of nights ago. So when you're going up against those teams, there's always going to be a bigger microscope on those games because there's a real chance you're going to have to go through those teams in order to get to where you want to go. So for that reason, there's an added level of concern. But as previously mentioned, it's their overall win profile on the year that has been concerning me for quite some time now. After their loss to the Denver Nuggets, the Clippers fell to 11-24 and against teams with a record of 500 or better. That mark is the third worst mark in the entire Western Conference. The only two teams that have worse records than the Clippers in the Western Conference against teams 500 or better are the San Antonio Spurs and the Houston Rockets, two teams in the Wemby chase. So that is a concern, and it has been for a while. This is not a new development. The Clippers have not been good against good teams all season, and that has continued post-All-Star break. Now, they were in both games, of course, as they each went into overtime, but I think you can make the argument that neither game should have actually gone into overtime had the Clippers executed properly. And then the same can be said uh, for overtime as well when they didn't execute there either. So some real concerning trends over the last two games that have built on the overall concern of the Clippers and their struggles to beat good teams all season long. Now, some of that had started to go away. Some of the talk around their their record against good teams and really just their overall mediocrity on the season. A lot of that talk had started to go away during that 8-2 and two stretch that they put together heading into the All-Star break. Of course, that was uh, that winning stretch was cut a little bit short by a few losses here and there, but they actually did have an 8-2 and two stretch before the break. And while it looked good on paper, of course, 8-2 and two is incredible, there were concerns during that stretch for me as well. And it was really almost every single game where I was seeing some concerning trends. And it started uh, in that game versus the Chicago Bulls. The Clippers almost choked that game away at the very end. And they probably would have if the officials made the appropriate call on Reggie Jackson's reach in on DeMar DeRozan that ultimately uh, resulted in a turnover and points for the Clippers. The NBA's last two-minute report said that should have been a foul on Reggie Jackson, which would have put DeMar DeRozan to the free throw line. And even without that missed call, Zach Levine had an opportunity to put Chicago up at the line, but he missed free throws. So there were just a few things in that game that left the door open for the Clippers. They got a little bit lucky to escape 
Chicago with that win, but you'll take it. You'll take the win. Of course, you move forward. No, you didn't play your best. But the problem was that those concerning trends of the Clippers struggling to execute down the stretch were incredibly persistent throughout the rest of that road trip, going right into their next game versus the Milwaukee Bucks. This was probably the Clippers' biggest meltdown of the season. They were up by 21, I believe it was, at one point, and they choked that game away. Uh, both throughout the it was kind of like a slow uh lead the the lead kind of slowly evaporate evaporated in the second half but it was really in crunch time when the clippers fell apart and were turning the ball over couldn't make a shot of their offense completely broke down and the bucks were able to steal that game after being down uh, over 20 points as i previously mentioned and, and their three point shots were not falling at all in that game so that was the next game after the chicago game And then the Clippers went to New York and they won that game against the Knicks. But if you remember, it was a Nicholas Batum three at the buzzer that sent it to overtime after the Clippers had completely collapsed down the stretch, again, up double digits late in the fourth quarter, gave it up and the Knicks were going to win that game. But the Clippers got lucky with an offensive rebound and a bailout buzzer-beating three by Nicholas Batum at the horn, sent it to overtime, and they got the win. So that really could have been three straight bad losses, but they got very fortunate to escape Chicago and New York with wins and went 2-1 and during that stretch. Then they head to Brooklyn, and they're facing a Brooklyn Nets team without Kyrie Irving and without Kevin Durant. That was before both of those players got traded. They were both out at that time and they nearly choked that game as well they were getting beat by cam thomas the entire night which okay he was on a heater that happens but it was again poor execution and turnovers down the stretch that got the nets going got them up and the clippers nearly choked that game away then they go into this stretch where they're really starting to play some good teams and you know like i mentioned already You take wins, that 8-2 and stretch was good. But it was the execution that concerned me throughout much of that stretch, even though they were surviving with wins. And I want to emphasize that point because you can never fault a team for winning games. And I know it may sound as if I'm doing that right now, but that's not the case. I'm really just talking about the fact that they did not look like dominant championship contenders during those wins where they were sneaking by against bad teams and were really getting lucky despite their poor execution down the stretch. So that was that little road trip. And then they come back home, and you look ahead at the schedule, and this is where I was getting into before I had to make that point, where they're starting to play some more Western Conference contenders, and you're looking at the schedule, and you're saying, okay, the Clippers are about to get tested here. They got a game against Dallas, and they had that one against Milwaukee, but then they had the two coming up against Golden State and Phoenix. So you're looking at that stretch heading into the all-star break and you're saying, okay, this is big. It's a big stretch for the Clippers entering the break. Obviously the trade deadline was mixed in there as well. And you felt that if the Clippers were able to get a couple of wins on this stretch, enter the break with some momentum, they would be in a good spot. They lose that first game against Dallas. It was Kyrie Irving's debut. Clippers did not look good. Kyrie uh, was, was pretty solid in his debut. And then they play the Bucks, lose to them. That was at home as well. And after that game was when Paul George came out and openly advocated for Russell Westbrook. And, of course, Russ ended up signing, but that was 
during the All-Star break. And then the Clippers had two wins against the Golden State Warriors and the Phoenix Suns. Those were the first two games with their new additions. And people were starting to get very optimistic about where, where they were as a team. And those two wins were primarily what steer. I don't want to say primarily because there's a lot of other reasons, but those two wins were a big reason why so many Clippers fans were against the Russell Westbrook move because it looked as if the team was starting to gel, starting to gain some continuity, and finding themselves a little bit with their new additions. Now, I didn't completely disagree with that outlook. I actually talked about it in my Westbrook episode, and I pretty much did agree with it. But I think people went a little bit too far with those two wins. I think they became a little bit overrated because the Clippers were facing a Warriors team without Steph Curry, and they were facing a Phoenix Suns team without Kevin Durant. And you might be saying, well, Joey, KD hasn't even played for the Suns yet. You can't make that argument. But it's not only that they didn't have Kevin Durant, but you also have to take out Michael Bridges and Cam Johnson because those two guys have been starters in their lineup all season long and, of course, are now in Brooklyn while the Suns are awaiting Kevin Durant's debut. So they were playing a Suns team without their best player, a Warriors team without their best player, and they looked good. Those were still two solid wins, but I think they became a little bit overrated amongst Clippers fans when evaluating where they were as a team. But again, as I mentioned previously, you can't knock a team for winning. You have to play the team that's in front of you. The Clippers did that, and they did it well. So they entered the break with a little bit of momentum, despite that shaky road trip that I talked about where they also escaped with some wins that they really didn't deserve. But they entered the break with a little bit of momentum and quite a bit of optimism. Then they signed Russell Westbrook, and we come out of the break, and the Clippers are now 0-2. Now what so many people are going to do is they're going to look at Russell Westbrook and they're going to say, well, look what happened. The Clippers are all of a sudden a bad team with Westbrook and the Lakers are all of a sudden a good team without him. I have seen that done so many times already and it is completely ridiculous. There is so much context that is being omitted when people do that and it's frustrating to see, one, because it's very expected and it's completely unsurprising, but two, because... It's equally as wrong as it is unsurprising, unfortunately. Because Russell Westbrook has been very solid for the Clippers. In his first two games, he's averaging 17 points per game, nine assists per game, and five rebounds per game on 57% from the field. And he's been limiting the turnovers for the most part. His turnover total was a bit high in his debut, but I don't think that tells the full story. Because the Clippers were trying different things, using him as a screener. Two of his turnovers were on moving screens that were offensive fouls, and those count as turnovers. And is that a good thing? No, but one, that's a dead ball turnover. So the team is not able to get out in transition or run on you. And second, it shows that he's at least buying in to a new role and showing a willingness to screen and try new things when that hasn't been what he has done throughout the course of his career. So I don't have a problem with those two turnovers. And a couple others were miscommunication. And that's going to happen as well when you're integrating a new piece into a new team. So it wasn't like he was completely careless with the ball and just throwing it all over the place. That was game one. And in game two, he only had two turnovers and was incredible. But he got benched down the stretch, which was confusing to me. He didn't play a single minute in the fourth quarter or overtime periods. And it was Eric Gordon who was the lead guard for the Clippers 
during most of those minutes. And that was also confusing to me because he did not have it going. He played 25 minutes, scored zero points. Um, and his defense was not as solid as it had been in some of the previous games. So I was confused why he stayed out there. But going back to what I said, I don't want to talk too much about the Lakers because this isn't about them. But while Westbrook has been getting blamed mostly by people outside of the Clippers fan base for the team's recent struggles, they have also been giving his absence, they've been also using his absence as why the Lakers have all of a sudden been playing much better. As if they didn't add Jared Vanderbilt, D'Angelo Russell, and Malik Beasley at the trade deadline. So it's been ridiculous to see that narrative Uh, Most people who listen to this podcast would be able to sniff that out already on their own. But I did want to mention that briefly before getting into Westbrook and and the Clippers as a whole. But as previously mentioned, he's been great his last two games, his first two games with the Clippers. I've been very pleased with what I have seen him do. And all the positives that I talked about on my episode about Russell Westbrook, I believe they have been there in these first two games. He's rebounded well. He's pushed the pace. He's found shooters. I mean, he had 14 assists in his Clippers debut. So he's been fantastic. But as I previously mentioned, he was benched for Eric Gordon down the stretch of that overtime game against the Denver Nuggets. And that was a little bit concerning to me because what it showed is that Ty Lue is still deep into experimentation mode. And that's not my words. That's something that Ty himself has admitted, that he's still trying to experiment and find different combinations that work. Because in Westbrook's debut, he was the closer, right? He played most of the fourth quarter and all of the overtime before he fouled out. And then in this game, despite the fact that he was playing better than he was in that debut, he's out of the closing group. So to me, that showed that Ty is still experimenting, and he admitted that post game, saying that he's trying to find different things and could have played Westbrook more. But the problem with experimenting is that, as I previously mentioned, the Clippers are one game above the play-in tournament. You lose too many games from experimentation and you're in danger of missing the playoffs. So while I understand you have to figure out new combinations and you're still trying to figure out what works with your newer pieces, you're not really in a position to do that. And the reason why is because the Clippers were very bad during the stretch of the season where they had the NBA's easiest schedule. For the first couple months of the season, the Clippers had the NBA's easiest schedule by a consistent margin. They had a cupcake schedule for the first several weeks of the season. And their inability to capitalize on that, which was partially due to Kawhi Leonard missing time, has now put them in a position where they can't afford to lose games due to experimenting. They need to win games now because they didn't do it earlier. So that leads me into my next point because while Ty Lue has shown a lot of experimentation with you know, three guard groups and trying different things with different guys, one of the things that he hasn't experimented with really at all this season is less Marcus Morris minutes. That has been arguably the biggest constant for the Clippers this season is Marcus Morris being a consistent part of the rotation. And what's funny about me talking about this right now is that the two games leading into the Denver game, Tyloo had actually shown a real willingness to go away from Marcus Morris in the second half. And it seemed as if the writing was on the wall 
that Marcus was going to be getting less and less minutes going forward and potentially end up as a DMP like Reggie Jackson ultimately was when he got removed from the starting lineup the first time. But that trend did not continue because in that overtime loss to the Denver Nuggets last night, Marcus Morris played 33 minutes, which was the third most on the entire team behind Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And that, to me, was one of the most concerning things that I have seen all season. Because as Ty was starting to show some willingness to go away from Marcus Morris, he went right back to him in not only a major role in terms of his total minutes, but when those minutes came. Because he was subbed back in in the fourth quarter to close, and he stayed in the entire overtime period as well. And he was horrible. He missed all of his shots from deep. He was playing terrible defense. He was a minus 17 on the night. And he had one of the worst turnovers of the game towards the end of overtime. And this is not just a bad moment for Marcus Morris, who has had some big moments in his Clippers tenure. It has been a bad season for Marcus Morris for a long time now. And it's gotten progressively worse as the season has gone on. And that's not something I'm making up because as the season has gone on, Marcus Morris's shooting percentage has decreased month by month by month. And he's now shooting below 40% in the month of February. And as I mentioned, it has been steadily decreasing as the season has gone on. And when it's a player like Marcus Morris who does not give you anything on the glass, does not pro- provide any defensive resistance, doesn't make plays for others. If he's not making shots, then what is he out there for? Because while the Clippers' other two power forwards and Robert Covington and Nicholas Batum have their limitations as well, their offense is not what they're completely relying on. Nicholas Batum is an incredibly versatile defender, both on and off the ball. Robert Covington has his struggles defensively on the ball, but he is fantastic off the ball. Both of those guys can give you more rebounding than Morris. Well, neither of them are great rebounders. They they both give you more than Morris does. And both of them are guys who, as I previously mentioned, if their offense isn't there that night, can contribute in other ways. And that is unfortunately at this stage of Marcus Morris's career, not something that he provides. And in the same way that his shooting percentage has declined As the season has gone on, his production also declines as the game goes on. In fourth quarters this season, Marcus Morris is shooting 35.7% from the field and 28.1% from deep. And that's what he's out there for, to make shots. But he has not done that down the stretch of games. There have been countless times this season where Marcus Morris has gotten a clean look in a huge moment and just hasn't knocked it down. And you're not going to make all of those, but when you're looking at the trends and the numbers, they are showing a serious decline in production as both the season goes on for Marcus Morris and as the game goes on. Now, one of the biggest arguments that Marcus Morris has in his favor, and for the few people that that still try to defend him on a regular basis, they talk about his on-off numbers, And they talk about the production that the Clippers have when he's on the floor as a team, as a unit. 
But what they fail to mention, and, and it's really surprising to me that people fail to mention this when they bring up those stats, is that he has been in the starting lineup all year long. Most of his minutes come alongside Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, making it very easy for his production to look solid from a team standpoint. And that goes for everything from offensive rating to defensive rating to rebound percentage because he's playing a lot of minutes with Zoo. There are a lot of different things that go into those numbers, which is why whenever I bring them up on this podcast, I try to add the appropriate context to the numbers that we're looking at. And I don't think enough people are doing that when talking about Marcus Morris and his production from a team standpoint when he's on the floor. Because even with Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Ivica Zubac there to cover for him, when Marcus Morris is on the floor this season, the Clippers have a 114.5 defensive rating, which is the worst mark of any player on the team. And as previously mentioned, that is with him playing most of his minutes next to the team's two stars and the team's best rim protector, really their only rim protector, in Big Zoo. So that is a concern, especially when you start talking about the alternatives, which are Terrence Mann, Nicholas Batum. I'll throw Robert Covington's name out there, although I have pretty much given up on the possibility of him being in the rotation. I just don't think it's going to happen. You don't sit a guy on the bench until February and then all of a sudden have it become a big party rotation. That's just not realistic. So for the people calling for Rocco, I get it, but I'd probably give up on that if we're being completely honest. But when you look at Terrence Mann and Nicholas Batum, both of those guys are realistic options for Morris's role. You can say that Terrence Mann is a guard, but he was literally playing backup forward yesterday, backup power forward yesterday in a 3-4 guard group, depending on how you see Terrence. So he can absolutely play up. And Nicholas Batum is 100% a power forward. Now, when it comes to Terrence Mann, a lot of people have expressed concerns about Russell Westbrook's addition taking away from Terrence Mann's minutes. And that's a real concern because Terrence Mann was, of course, the starting point guard before Russell Westbrook showed up. And in his in Westbrook's first game, Mann got the fewest minutes he's seen since December 31st. So it's a real concern. But with Westbrook playing well, I don't think that him being on the floor needs to result in a direct slashing of Terrence's minutes. Because if Marcus Morris is playing this poor, especially down the stretch of games, Terrence Mann is a very real option for his place in the rotation. Because he can play every single position on the floor. Maybe outside of the five, but that's even something the Clippers have had him do at times as well, especially with his ability as a roller. So when you're talking about Russell Westbrook being in the rotation, potentially impacting Terrence's man, Terrence Mann's minutes, I want to ask, what if you put Mann in for Morris? And you have Russ, Mann, PG, Kawhi, Zoo, or if you want to go small, you can go a guy like Nico there at the five and get creative with it. I think that is something that can work very well, especially down the stretch. Because as we just talked about, Marcus Morris's production declines drastically as the game goes on. But Terrence Mann, he has been one of the most productive fourth quarter players in the entire NBA this season. Now, here's an interesting 
but concerning stat for the Clippers. Terrence Mann is first on the team in fourth quarter net rating, but he is 10th on the team in fourth quarter minutes per game. His 10.2 net rating, his plus 10.2 net rating in the fourth quarter is the seventh best mark in the entire NBA amongst all players who have played in at least 50 fourth quarters this season. He is quite literally one of the most productive players in the fourth quarter in the entire NBA, yet he is 10th in fourth quarter minutes per game on the Clippers. That is a problem. Now, in order to get those rankings, I took out both the new players and the garbage time players. Talking about guys like Eric Gordon, guys like Mason Plumley, because the sample size just isn't big enough with two games to look at overall team ratings. And then I took out guys like Musa, Preston, and Brandon, because all of their fourth quarter minutes primarily have come in garbage time. So that's how I got with Terrence having the most, or excuse me, the highest net rating and just the 10th most minutes. And you can pull those numbers yourself on on NBA.com. That is a concern, especially when a guy like Marcus Morris not only continues to play fourth quarter minutes, but he actually subbed in for Terrence at the end of last night's game against Denver and then played the rest of the over, excuse me, the rest of the fourth quarter and then the entire overtime period. That is a major concern. And if it doesn't change, could be the type of thing that loses you a playoff series or loses you a playing game. That is how big of a deal I think it is. So when you're looking ahead at what the Clippers have coming up, considering everything we've just talked about, this stretch they have, really their next four or five games, could quite literally make or break their season. And that sounds hyperbolic. It sounds like I'm exaggerating, but it's the truth. There is a scenario tomorrow where the Clippers fall to the seventh seed and are now sitting in the play-in picture. If the Clippers lose to the Timberwolves and the Warriors and Mavericks both win and neither one of them are playing winning teams, the Clippers end the night at seventh. And then now you're forced to jump teams again to get back into the playoff picture. And is it impossible? Of course not. But the Clippers have the ninth hardest remaining strength strength of schedule in the entire NBA. Their next four games look like this. They have Minnesota tomorrow, as I just mentioned. Then they have the Warriors and the Kings on a road back-to-back. And there's a possibility that Steph Curry could be coming back for that game against the Warriors. He's going to be reevaluated on Wednesday. That game's on Thursday. Then they play the Kings on a back-to-back, as I just mentioned, the very next night. Then they come back home and face the Memphis Grizzlies, the second-best team in the Western Conference. So that is four straight games that project to be difficult. And as I already mentioned, you lose tomorrow, there's a chance you fall into the play-in. Then you start losing any more games after that, and you're really looking up, and you're in some trouble. So this is not the time for the Clippers to be experimenting with things that have already been proven not to work. Now, maybe that sample size of certain things not working is not as big as Ty Lue would like for it to be before he makes decisions to change things up. But it is big enough to where you have to make these changes or else your season is in real jeopardy. Because not only are the Clippers trying to avoid the play-in at this point, but the further they slide down the standings, 
their path to a championship, even if they were to escape the play-in, becomes more and more difficult. Because there's a real possibility that the Suns are headed towards that three seed. Yes, the Sacramento Kings have looked fantastic and they look to have a real grip on that three seed. And you can make an argument that the Clippers would rather see them than a team like Phoenix. But Kevin Durant is yet to debut for the Phoenix Suns. And we don't know what that's going to look like. They could really rattle off some wins, grab that three seed. And now the Clippers are looking at a first round matchup with the Suns. The best case scenario is for the Clippers to climb to the four seed have home court advantage in first in the first round, and then face a team like Dallas or like Sacramento having home court advantage. And neither of those options are ideal because you could certainly lose to both of those teams as well. But as you start to fall further and further down the standings, even if you take the play-in picture out of the question, you're setting yourself up for a real hard first round. And if you win that first round, you got a real hard second round coming up as well. And while part of that is just the nature of the Western Conference, we have seen what falling onto the wrong side of the bracket can do when it comes to trying to make a run to the NBA Finals. I believe that's really what hurt the Clippers in 2021 because they were forced to go seven games with Luka in round one, relying on historically great performances from Kawhi Leonard. And then he ultimately went down in round two against the one seed Utah Jazz. Of course, the Clippers, they they hung on and they won the series, but Kawhi went down. So you have to do all you can to put yourself in a position for the path of least resistance to the NBA Finals. And there's never going to be a path with no resistance, but as you start falling further and further down the standings, that resistance becomes a lot tougher on you. And that's something that the Clippers are currently in a position to potentially face. So the potential good news is that tomorrow Ivica Zubak could be coming back. He is listed as questionable, and usually when the Clippers upgrade players to questionable, it means that they are on track to make their return. So with Zoo coming back, the Clippers should enter this stretch of games, that, that tough stretch of four games that I just mentioned, fully healthy. If nothing wacky happens, they should have their full group ready to go. Which one means that they have as good of a chance as they're ever going to have against these teams. And two, it means that Ty Lu has his full rotation ready and available, which eliminates the excuses. Because as I just mentioned, you are not in a position to experiment anymore. You have to start winning games. And it's primarily due to the fact that you did not capitalize on your light schedule early in the season, and you have not beaten good teams really at all the entire season long. You are now in do-or-die mode. And I don't like to be reactionary in that way, but I don't think this is reactionary. I think it's completely justified to ask the question, are the Clippers in trouble? And my ultimate answer is the next four games will tell us everything we need to know. And once they're done, we'll hop on a podcast again and break it all down. So until then, you guys, much love and go Clippers.